0: of the lecture cycle by Rudolf Steiner entitled According to Matthew The Gospel of Christ's Humanity As perceived by spiritual science the most significant factor in the step-by-step progression of human evolution is the fact that individuals reincarnate repeatedly in different epochs. Thus human beings attain ever higher degrees of perfection and gradually develop inner forces that are suited to the receptive respective planetary stages of evolution. On the one hand, we see evolving human beings gradually ascending with eyes fixed on their divine goal. On the other hand, we could never attain such heights without the help of beings whose evolution has taken them on very different courses through the cosmos. Occasionally beings from other spheres unite with human evolution on earth to raise human beings to their own higher levels. For example, during an earlier planetary stage of the Earth's existence, the exalted beings called thrones sacrificed the substance of their will to form the first seeds of the physical human body. This is only one large-scale example of an ongoing process. Superhuman beings continually descend to the human level and unite with human evolution, assuming human form and dwelling for a time within human souls. In more trivial terms, we might say that such beings manifest as divine forces that pervade and inspire human souls, who then accomplish more in human evolution than is possible for any ordinary human being. It is unpopular to say these things in our materialistic age, which pulls everything down to the human level and preserved only a vestige of the view I just expressed. People today would find it superstitious to think that anyone might be imbued with, or addressed by, a being from higher regions. Our acceptance of the occasional genius, however, is cloaked in a subconscious belief in miracles and preserves the one remaining vestige of this notion. Even ordinary consciousness today acknowledges the existence of outstanding individuals whose soul faculties are quite different from those of ordinary human beings. Certain circles have tried to eliminate the notion of genius by fiat, since materialistic thinking no longer grasps the reality of spiritual activity. But among the general public, at least, a belief in genius persists. And if this belief is more than empty words, we must admit that the forces speaking through a genius who advances human evolution are different from those of ordinary human nature. If we simply considered teachings that acknowledge the facts, we would realize that whenever someone seems possessed by something extraordinarily good, great and powerful, a spiritual force has descended and taken possession of the only place where divine beings can work the inner nature of a human being. From the outset, spiritual science reveals two obvious possibilities first, that humans evolve toward divine heights. Second, that divine spiritual beings descend into human bodies and souls. Any significant step in human evolution requires the descent of a divine being who joins and pervades a human soul, as a scene in my Rosicrucian mystery play suggests. To understand this in relationship to human spiritual evolution on earth, let's recall that the earth remained one with the sun during its earliest stages and separated later, though still in the very distant past. Spiritual science tells us that this separation involved more than the material aspects of the earth and sun. It also included the divine spiritual beings associated with those bodies. After the earth separated from the sun, certain spiritual beings remained united with the earth, while others stayed with the sun, since they had outgrown earthly conditions and could not complete their cosmic development on earth. Spiritual beings of one type remained more closely united with the earth, while others worked into earthly existence from the sun. Thus those beings who serve humankind from a higher sphere shifted their field of activity away from the earth to the sun. The beings who occasionally unite with earthly human beings to further human and earthly evolution come from the domain of the sun. Those beings were the solar heroes of many different cultural myths, and they work into human evolution from spiritual spheres. Those ensouled by sun beings are much more than they seem to be. Their outer aspect is maya, and behind that illusion is the true being, whose presence is known only to those who can read the greatest depths of such a constitution. The mysteries have always preserved the knowledge of this distinction between divine beings descending from spiritual spheres and human beings ascending from the earth by striving for initiation into the secrets of the Spirit. Which kind of being was the Christ? We learned yesterday that the designation, quote, Christ the Son of the Living God, unquote, refers to a descending being one of the descending divinities known as avatars in Eastern philosophy. Only after a certain point in their narratives, however, is such a being described by the four evangelists, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. At the baptism in the Jordan, this being descended to earth from the realms of sun existence and united with a human being. It is important to know that this sun being was greater than any previous avatar and therefore had to be received by a specially prepared and evolved human being. All four evangelists describe the Son being, the Son of the living God, toward whom we as human beings are evolving. But only Matthew and Luke speak of the person who evolved to receive this Son being. They describe thirty years of striving toward the great moment when this individual would receive the Son being. And because the being we call the Christ is universal and all-encompassing, the preparation of his bodily garments could not be simple and straightforward. The Christ had to encounter specially prepared physical and etheric garments, whose development Matthew describes. The being who is specially prepared through forty-two generations of Hebrews to provide the physical and etheric garments of the Christ could, also, could not also prepare an astral garment and eye vehicle for the descending sun being. A special arrangement was required, involving a different human entity, as described by Luke in the story of the young Nathanic Jesus. We saw that the Jesus of Matthew, united with the Jesus of Luke, When the being of Zarathustra, the I, who initially incarnated into the bodily garments described in Matthew, left the twelve-year-old Jesus of Matthew and entered Luke's Nathanic Jesus, there he continued his life and used the faculties acquired in the prepared physical and etheric bodies of Matthew's Jesus to develop the astral body and the I-vehicle of Jesus sufficiently to receive the being descending from higher regions. This event occurred in the thirtieth year of Jesus' life. Matthew first considers the question of the specific physical and etheric bodies that would enable the Christ being to walk the earth. To prepare these physical and etheric bodies through heredity, all the potential first implanted in Abraham had to be developed fully through forty-two generations of Hebrews. Furthermore. These lower bodies could serve as the necessary instruments only if they were used by the great being of Zarathustra, who had prepared humankind to receive and understand the Christ. Those bodies supported Zarathustra's development until the age of twelve, when he had to leave the body of Matthew's Jesus and enter the body of Luke's Jesus. At this point Matthew shifts his attention from his original subject to Luke's Jesus, followings Zarathustra's life, until the age of thirty, when the astral body and the eye vehicle of Jesus were fully developed and could be handed over to the sun spirit who descended during the baptism in the Jordan. Let's recall the earth's separation from the sun and the fact that the Christ is the supreme leader of the beings that separated from earth. Certain beings, including the Christ, gradually extend their activity to include the earth, To understand another phenomenon related to the sun's separation, we must recall my frequent descriptions of existence on ancient Saturn. That stage was relatively simple in terms of substance, which consisted wholly of warmth. Air and water did not yet exist, nor did the light ether which appeared during the later sun stage. During the moon stage, an additional densification produced the watery element, while further refinement produced the sound ether. During the Earth stage, the solid element appeared as a densification, and the life ether as a further rarefication. Thus we now have on Earth the denser states of warmth, air or gas, water or fluid, and solid matter, along with the more rarefied light, sound, and life ethers. The life ether is the most rarefied etheric state we know. When it separated from the Earth, the Sun took both its matter and its spiritual aspect with it. The spiritual aspect gradually returned to the earth, but not completely, as I described in Munich in my lectures on the six days of creation. I will mention this phenomenon only briefly here. On earth the only higher etheric states that we perceive are heat, the warmth ether, and light. Sound, as we perceive it on earth, is a mere reflection. It is a physical form of the true sound in the ether. When we speak of the sound ether, we mean the vehicle for the music of the spheres, which can be heard only by suprasensory perception. Light from today's physical sun comes to earth, but the light ether represents a higher state present only in the sun itself. I have often said that this passage from Goethe is not just empty words. The sun intones in ancient tourney with brother spheres a rival song, fulfilling its predestined journey with march of thunder, Moves along. This passage refers to the music of the spheres in the sound ether. Human beings experience it only through initiation or when a sun being descends and imparts it to someone selected to serve the development of other human beings. For such an individual, the sun begins to intone, and the music of the spheres becomes audible. The life ether is above the sound ether. The quote unquote word or meaning, is the underlying inner soul aspect of mere sound. Similarly, the meaning or word associated with the life ether is the expressive sound of the sun being. The later Persians called it honover. John the Evangelist calls it logos. Who in human evolution was able to hear the intoning, speaking sun and its beings? In post-Atlantean times, Zarathustra was blessed in this way. It is no mere myth but literal truth that Zarathustra received instruction through the sun word, S-U-N. When he imparted his overwhelming and majestic teachings to his students, Zarathustra was simply a tool through which the sound and meaning of the sun word spoke. Hence the Persian legend of the sun word, proclaimed from the mouth of Zarathustra the mysterious word behind the sun's existence. This legend speaks of Ahura Mazda as the astral body of the sun, sun, It also speaks of the sun word, the Greek Logos. It is clear that in those ancient times even someone as exalted as Zarathustra had not yet attained a level of initiation that would allow him to consciously receive the word that would one day speak to human beings. Even, Zarath- even Zarathustra had to be ensouled by a higher being one at a level of development that he had not yet attained. He was able to teach about Ahura Mazda because the sun's aura enveloped him and the spiritual being Ahura Mazda intoned through him. The sun word, the great aura, in quotes, and light of the universe spoke in him. The outer physical aspect of the sun god revealed its effects to human beings before he himself descended to earth. The sun word was his more inner aspect. Zarathustra taught his students to acknowledge the spiritual light behind the physical light of the sun. He told them that just as the astral body or aura lies behind a physical human being, so the quote great aura stands behind The physical sun, S-U-N. The physical sun is the light body of a being who will one day descend to Earth. The physical sun is the physical aspect of a being we can learn to perceive clairvoyantly. Also includes an inner aspect of soul. A soul element expresses itself through sound, just as the sun word or logos expresses itself through the sun's aura. Zarathustra promised humankind that the great aura the light-being whose soul is the sun-word, would one day descend from divine spiritual spheres. The Zarathustra of antiquity is the origin of this prophetic wisdom of the coming of the sun-aura and sun-word. This wisdom has lived through the ages in the mysteries and always provided great comfort and hope to those who longed for something higher in human evolution. Lesser sun-spirits, delegates of the sun-word, united with the earth and provided increasingly specific teachings. Knowledge of the spirit behind the sun's light is one aspect of the mystery tradition passed down from antiquity. Its other aspect was that human beings were learning to grow toward the being descending toward the earth. In pre-Christian times, however, it was not yet possible to believe that any weak, human individual could grow to meet the greatest Son being, the Christ and leader of the sun spirits, it was impossible for anyone to accomplish this union through initiation. Hence Matthew describes how the bloodline of the Hebrews helped produce such an individual, while Luke describes seventy-seven stages of filtering, in quotes. <clears throat> uh, the best of earthly humanity to develop the appropriate body for the greatest being ever to descend to earth. By this time, of course, those who came for teachings in the ancient mystery centers were weak and certainly not immediately able to attain all that humankind or even an individual can achieve in the course of evolution. Consequently, aspirants were separated into different classes that approached the mysteries in various ways. Some focused on certain types of silent inner development which help a soul to understand, feel and experience a sun spirit. Others were instructed in the specific outer actions that helped to make an individual a suitable instrument or temple for a descending sun being. In the ancient mysteries, certain students were told they were to act in a particular way. From early childhood, these students were coached in physical development that would allow their physical bodies to become temples for descending sun beings. This was the situation in ancient times, as well as today, though modern thinking is too superficial and materialistic to be aware of it. What happens when the time comes for a higher being to descend from spiritual spheres and help humankind advance to the next level? Those who serve the mysteries must wait for such times, for their task is to interpret the signs of the times. They must wait in calm, silent renunciation until a god descends from the heavenly heights. Meanwhile, they must pay attention to the outer aspects of humanity. They must locate and educate someone suited to receiving such a being. The one who receives an especially exalted being must be educated from early childhood to become the temple for such a being. Even today this process of selection and education occurs, but we are unaware of it at the time. Afterward, we can discover that the biographies of such gifted individuals share certain signs. The external circumstances of their lives may be very different, but certain connections are nonetheless apparent. In human evolution, we discover occasional exceptional individuals whose outer lives have a kind of consistency. Modern researchers have also noted this undeniable fact. In ordinary and not especially profound scholarship, you can find tables that show the similarities in the lives of such personalities. Professor Jensen of Marburg, for example, created very tidy charts that reveal similarities in the biographies of the ancient Babylonian Gilgamesh, Moses, Jesus, and St. Paul. Since these wonderfully strange similarities are quite incomprehensible to materialistic thinking, Jensen concludes that one myth is copied from another. In other words, that the author of Jesus' biography copied material from the biography of the ancient Babylonian Gilgamesh, and Moses' biography echoes that same ancient epic. Jensen's final conclusion, however, is that Moses, Jesus, and Paul never existed as physical human beings. For the most part, people have no idea of the extremely materialistic interpretations that result from today's so-called research into such issues. The similarity of these biographies is simply a result of the fact that those meant to receive a divine being must be guided in specific ways, beginning in early childhood. If we understand the deeper course of human and cosmic evolution, such similarities will not be surprising. Comparing mythologies and finding forced similarities is essentially a fruitless diversion. What good is it to find similar features in the lives of the German Siegfried and some Greek hero? Of course, they contain parallels. Whom the garments clothe is important, but their appearance is not. The being of Siegfried, identifiable only through esoteric research, is important. The fact that such and such occurred in his life is not. For our purposes, it is only important to know that those intended to accommodate beings who will advance humankind receive specific guidance early in life. Consequently, the essential features of their lives are similar or parallel in certain respects. Since ancient times, the mysteries have had rules concerning what needs to happen with such people. With regard to the Christ, the Essene communities had rules governing the Solomonic and Nathanic Jesus' children and how they were to be educated so they could receive the exalted Son being of the Christ. Not all candidates were initiated into every secret, There were various classes and types of initiates. Some focused on understanding what to do to be worthy of receiving a divinity, while others recognized the behavior of a god manifesting in a human being as quote-unquote genius, to express it in trivial terms. People today do not recognize the similarities among those in the grip of genius. From a spiritual perspective, Goethe's genius is remarkably similar to that of Dante, Homer, or Aeschylus. Modern biographies, however, are not written from the spiritual perspective. Instead, biographers collect trivial details of their subject's outer life. But an extensive file of facts about Goethe's life tells us very little about who and what Goethe truly was. With considerable hubris, we declare ourselves incapable of tracing the evolution of genius in an individual, a confession that accounts for the modern emphasis on the earliest, most youthful versions of poetic works and on the fresh originality that disappeared as their creators grew older. The reality of the matter, however, is that critics arrogantly choose to understand poets only in their youthful periods and fail and fail to follow the changes they experience in life. Critics pat themselves on the back for focusing exclusively on youth. They despise anything old and fail to recognize their own biased and juvenile approach, which unfortunately is widespread and deeply ingrained. Not surprisingly, our contemporaries usually fail to comprehend that a divine being can take hold of a human individual, and that although such beings dwell in different human beings at different times, their manifestations are essentially similar. The mysteries broke these complex connections down among various classes. Some classes taught aspirants how people are prepared to receive godly beings. Others taught how the inner being of light, the logos or sun word, concealed in the sun's aura, was growing toward the earth. Because of the great complexity of this process, it would not be surprising if more than four evangelists were required to do justice to this great and mighty event. But four did make an attempt, and two of them, Matthew and Luke, tried to describe the person who developed to meet the descending sun being. Matthew describes the physical and etheric bodies of this individual, while Luke describes the astral body and the vehicle of the eye. In contrast, Mark is totally unconcerned with the aspect developed to encounter the sun being. He describes the sun aura, the spiritual light that streams through cosmic space, into Christ Jesus. That is why Mark begins with the baptism in the Jordan, the moment when the cosmic light descends. John describes the soul of this sun spirit, its inner aspect, the logos or sun word. Consequently, John's is also the gospel most concerned with inner events. You see how the facts are distributed among the four evangelists who describe the complex being of Christ Jesus from four perspectives. All four evangelists describe the Christ in Jesus of Nazareth. But each is forced to maintain the original, personal, clairvoyant perspective that makes it possible for him to describe the complexity of this being. Now, let's go over the differences again so they really sink in. Matthew's focus is initially restricted to the birth of the Solomonic Jesus and to the development of the physical and etheric forces. He continues by describing how Zarathustra, who transmitted his capacities to the Jesus of Luke, discarded those garments. Then Matthew is forced to follow another being. He preserves his original perspective, however, and focuses primarily on the attainments and consequences that the Solomonic Jesus passed on to the Nathanic Jesus. In other words, Matthew focuses less on the original aspects of the astral body and eye vehicle of Luke's Jesus, and more on aspects passed on from the Jesus described in his gospel. In describing the descended sun being, Matthew is concerned primarily with the faculties that Jesus was able to possess only because he cultivated them in the physical and etheric bodies of the Solomonic Jesus. Naturally, this aspect was still evident in the Christ and it was the most important to Matthew. From the onset, Mark focuses on the sun spirit descending from heaven rather than on any earthly being. For Mark, the physical body is merely a medium for depicting the activity of the sun being within it. Mark shows us what he was able to trace, the effects of the sun spirit's forces. Many of these accounts are similar to those of Matthew yet their perspectives are different. Matthew emphasizes the character of the Christ's physical garments. He shows us the qualities that arose in the earliest years of Jesus' life, but remained hidden until later years. Matthew's descriptions show us the specific effects of these qualities. In contrast, Mark uses the physical movements and activities of Jesus only to demonstrate the activity of the Son Spirit on earth. To truly understand the Gospels in all their detail, you must consider each evangelist's unique and consistent focus. The aspects that were important to Luke are the astral body and the I-being, not the experiences of the outer physical personality, but the activities of the astral body, the vehicle of feelings, sensations, and and creativity. All compassion and mercy flow from the astral body. The Christ Jesus was a merciful being because he had the astral body of the Nathanic Jesus. This is Luke's focus from the outset. John focuses on the fact that the highest element ever to be active on earth, the inner aspect of the Sun Spirit, descended to earth through Jesus. John focuses on the pure Sun Logos. The physical life of Jesus is not of particular interest to John. It is simply a means of revealing the activity of the Sun Logos within humankind. John, too, maintains his original perspective throughout. When we sleep, we see our physical and etheric garments from outside. These two members of our constitution accommodate all the forces contributed by the divine spiritual beings who worked for millions and millions of years to produce the temple of the human physical body. Since Lemurian times we have both inhabited and degraded this temple. Originally we acquired it through the activity of divine beings during the Saturn, Sun and Moon periods. We should view the physical body as a temple prepared for us by the gods who voluntarily created it from solid matter. The etheric body contains a more rarefied substance which luciferic and aromonic influences have rendered us incapable of seeing. The etheric body houses what belongs to the sun. In it resounds the music of the spheres, which the gods perceive behind mere physical existence. We can say, therefore, that exalted divinities, specifically those related to the sun gods, inhabit the etheric body. In this sense, our physical and etheric bodies are the most perfected members of the human constitution. When we abandon them during sleep, they are filled with the activity of divine beings. Matthew initially focuses on the physical body and maintains that focus as he narrates the life of Christ Jesus, even after the original material, physical body, relinquished at age twelve, is no longer present. Its divine forces have passed into the physical body of the Nathanic Jesus which owes its perfection to forces received from the body of the Solomonic Jesus. Now let's consider how Matthew remains focused on the physical body as Jesus dies on the cross. The spiritual element, along with the divine elements the physical body has received, leaves the physical body. What Matthew observes is the separation of the inner nature of Christ Jesus from the divine element in Jesus' physical nature. In the ancient mysteries, whenever a person's spiritual nature left the physical body to behold the spiritual world, the words resounded, quote, My God, my God, how thou hast glorified me. Unquote. Because Matthew is observing the physical body, he changes these words into, quote, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Unquote, Matthew 27.46. In other words, quote, At this moment you have abandoned me. Unquote. Matthew pays particular attention to this moment of abandonment. Mark, however, always focuses on the approach of the outer forces of the sun aura, the body of the sun being, and their union with the etheric body of Jesus, which is in the same condition as our ether bodies during sleep. When we sleep, our outer forces leave us, and at the physical death of Jesus, these forces also left. At the death of Jesus, therefore, Mark uses the same words as Matthew, Mark 15.34. Because Luke preserves his original focus on the astral body and eye vehicle, he does not use the same words. He concentrates on other facts related to the astral body, which at this moment develops the ultimate degree of mercy and love. Hence Luke records the words, quote, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, unquote, Luke 23.34. <clears throat> These words of love could emerge only from the astral body that Luke has followed from the beginning. The ultimate humility and devotion issue from this astral body, which Luke observes to the very end. Hence his concluding words, "Father into thy hands, I commit my spirit luke twenty three forty six John describes the future reality of human earthly relationships, the meaning of earthly existence inherent. In the Son Word, John focuses on the ordering element that flows from the cross on Golgotha. He describes how the Christ establishes a higher form of community than earlier ones based on blood kinships. Christ Jesus now ordains relationships based on the love that unites one soul with another. He gives quote, the disciple whom he loved unquote, in spirit to Mary, his own biological mother, renewing ancient bonds that humankind had lost. The words resound from the cross with new meaning. Quote, Woman, behold your son, unquote, and to the disciple, quote, Behold your mother, unquote, John 19, 26, 27. The ordering principle of the life ether, <coughs> which establishes new communities, flows into the earth through the Christ's act. Thus a single action, the Christ event, is behind everything the evangelists describe. Each, however, describes it from the perspective of his unique clairvoyant vision and preparation overlooking everything else. The fact that this comprehensive event is described from four different aspects does not imply that the Gospels contradict one another. Rather, we begin to understand this event only when we reconcile these four different approaches. Thus it seems quite natural that Peter's confession of faith, mentioned yesterday, is included only in Matthew. Mark describes the Christ as the power of the sun, the universal cosmic force now working into the earth in a new way. In other words, Mark describes the majestic power of the sun aura and its elemental effects. Luke describes the inner nature of Christ Jesus, focusing primarily on the astral body, the independent human individuality. In the astral body the human being is independent, with the most profound selfhood living and growing there. We do not naturally form communities based on the astral body. The community-building force that allows one person to relate to others arises from the ether body. Thus Luke has neither reason nor opportunity to talk about building community, nor does John, whose focus is the I. In contrast, Matthew describes Christ Jesus As a human being, he is uniquely motivated to describe the human circumstances and events that result from God walking the earth in human form. Matthew describes the Christ at his most human, focusing on how he worked as a human being through what he received from the physical and etheric bodies of Jesus. Thus, Matthew must also describe the cohesive communities of individuals established by a God living a human life among human beings. If we develop an esoteric understanding of Matthew, we will also find it quite natural that the hotly debated words, You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, occur only in Matthew 16.18. When we survey the many discussions that modern theologians of various persuasions have had about this passage in Matthew, we discover very strange and personal reasons for accepting or refuting these words but nowhere do we see any understanding of their deeper meaning. Those who refute them do so because the exoteric institution of the Catholic Church was founded on them and stands behind them. But the fact that these words were misused for this purpose does not mean that the Matthew Matthew used them merely to support the Catholic Church. Opponents of this wording are in a rather strange position. In most cases, they have no specific reason for their opposition, because they cannot see how the meaning has been distorted. One commentator, for example, suggests that Mark is the oldest of the four Gospels, and that Matthew and Luke were later versions that copied and made additions to Mark. He suggests that because Matthew in particular wanted to support the Church, he decided to add the words, quote, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my Church, unquote. In many cases, written records are not very helpful. Since it is impossible to prove that, in fact, a given passage occurred in the ancient text in question, this passage from Matthew, however, is one of the best documented in the Gospels. There is no philological reason for doubting it. Many passages have been changed as they were transmitted through the ages, but from the perspective of philology, there is no reason to question the wording of either Peter's confession of faith: quote, "You are the Church." Excuse me. "You are the Christ, the Son of the Living God." or Christ's words, You are Peter, on this rock I will build my church, and the powers of death shall not prevail against it. These words are not questioned, because no existing text supports any arguments against them. Some people may have hoped to find support for their objections in more recently discovered texts, but in those texts the relevant passage is illegible, so much for philology. And, of course, on this level, we must depend on the reports of those who have viewed the manuscripts. Thus there is no reason to suspect that the original wording of this passage was any different from the one we know today. According to exoteric philology, these words are as well confirmed as any in the Gospels, and the entire character of Matthew supports this conclusion. The fact that this Gospel so clearly describes Christ Jesus as a human being is an essential key. With this key in hand, we, are, we can understand anything we encounter in Matthew, including the parables that Christ Jesus addresses to his disciples and to outsiders. As we mentioned yesterday, the human being develops upward from below to, level, to the level of the consciousness soul, the flower of human nature, and the Christ impulse approaches from above. The five members of the human constitution, etheric body, astral body, sentient soul, mind soul, and consciousness soul, developed during the five cultural epochs to date. Human beings can use and develop these members in ways that permit them to be filled with the Christ impulse at the right moment. Further human evolution will eventually enable everyone to share in the Christ simply by developing these five members from below upward in the appropriate way. Those who fail to do so during successive incarnations will not be mature enough to receive Christ when he comes, because they will have failed to keep the lamps of these members filled with oil. This is described in the beautiful parable of the five foolish maidens who could not unite with Christ because they did not fill their lamps at the right time. <clears throat> the five who had oil, however, were able to unite with Christ when the hour came. Matthew 25, 1-13 through All parables, based on numbers, illuminate the significance of the Christ impulse. To those who viewed his teachings from the outside, Christ also explained that some ordinary phenomena and events should not be considered only from an immediate materialistic perspective. Rather, they must be seen as signs having higher meaning. Using an example from their own way of thinking, the Christ asked for a coin and showed them Caesar's image on it, pointing out that the coin expressed something not inherent in the metal itself, namely allegiance to a specific ruler or authority. Render therefore unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's is implicit in the image, not inherent in the metal. Matthew 22.21 But the Christ also meant that we must learn to observe other people in the same way, recognizing them as the temple of the living God. He said, look at others the way you would a coin, learn to see the image of God in them, and you will understand that they belong to God. Matthew 22.15-22 These parables have a more profound aspect, in addition to the trivial one we generally see. We discover this deeper aspect when we realize that the Christ did not use parables in a modern journalistic sense. Because the Christ, quote-unquote, gave birth to his parables out of the fullness of human nature, thinking about them encourages us to adapt our everyday activities in appropriate ways. The 19th century author and librarian J.B. Perez used a similar technique to point out the inherent absurdity of a certain modern approach to mythology. In the 1830s, people claimed to see all kinds of, quote-unquote, sun myths, S.U.N., in great events in the lives of those such as the Buddha and the Christ. Such claims were presented as proof that those individuals never existed in the flesh. Perez published a satirical pamphlet showing how the superficial use of myth and astrology can quote unquote prove almost anything, for example, that Napoleon never existed as a real person. Here, in brief, is Perez's argument. Napoleon's name is the same as that of the sun god Apollo. In Greek, If an N begins a name, it indicates intensification rather than negation. So Napoleon, Napolon, means a kind of super-Apollo. Just imagine what Arthur Drews, the German philosophy professor who invented the non-existence of Jesus, concludes from the similarities among such names as Jesus, Joses, and Jason. In the same vein, we also discover remarkable similarities in their lives. The name of Napoleon's mother was Letitia, and Apollo's mother has the strikingly similar name Leto. Furthermore, Apollo, as the sun, was surrounded by the twelve constellations of the zodiac, while twelve marshals surrounded Napoleon, which might be construed as symbolic expressions of the zodiacal signs. And is it a coincidence that the hero of Napoleonic myth had exactly six siblings, bringing the total number of children in that family to seven? Just as there are seven planets, clearly, Napoleon never existed. Perez's booklet is an ingenious satire on the symbolic method of interpretation, which is once again gaining popularity. This method is being used today to prove that Jesus never lived. People forget, unfortunately, that this method could also be used to prove that Napoleon never existed. These examples suggest that considerable preparation, even esoteric preparation, is needed when we approach gospel accounts of the greatest event in the cosmos. We must realize that anthroposophists can easily make these same errors of symbolic interpretation, for those in the anthroposophic movement are certainly guilty of playing with symbols derived from the stars. That is why, in this lecture cycle, I chose to show how the language of the stars can be applied correctly to great events in human evolution. Such preparation is essential as we approach the climax of the Gospels. Having already pointed to the baptism and the life and death of Christ as two stages in initiation, I must now add only that Christ Jesus, after having taught his disciples to see beyond death, that is, to see how one's innermost nature leaves the body and enters the macrocosm, could not possibly enact a resurrection in the trivial sense in which it is often understood. If you truly understand the words of Matthew, you will find that they confirm, as do those of John, the truth of what Paul said. Paul saw the Christ as the risen one, and he emphasized that his experience on the road to Damascus was no different from the way Christ appeared to his brothers, then to the twelve, and finally to five hundred people at once. 1 Corinthians fifteen, three 3-8 The Gospels clearly indicate that others saw the Christ after his resurrection just as Paul did. John, for example, tells us that Mary Magdalene, who had last seen Christ only a few days earlier, saw him after the resurrection and mistook him for the gardener because he no longer resembled his former self. John 20.11-18 If he had looked as he did a few days earlier, this confusion could not have occurred or would have been highly unlikely. You would hardly expect her not to recognize someone she had seen only a few days earlier unless that person no longer looked the same. We must accept that the Christ's appearance had indeed changed. An exact reading of the Gospels reveals that the disciples' eyes were opened through those events in Palestine, including the mystery of Golgotha they were able to recognize the Christ as the Spirit pervading and enlivening the cosmos, that is, as he appeared after committing his physical body to the earth, a form in which he would remain just as active and effective as he had been in the flesh. In perhaps the most important words of all the scriptures, Matthew shows clearly that although Christ incarnated only once in a physical human body, this unique event was also a beginning, an impulse that will continue to work In the future, through the life of Christ Jesus, the sun-word that Zarathustra described as existing outside the earth was wedded to the earth. Prior to the life of Christ, this element was not united with the earth. Now it is and will remain so. As anthroposophists, it behooves us to understand this event. We must comprehend that the risen Christ made himself known to the disciples' newly clairvoyant eyes. He showed them that he would continue to work as spirit in all of earthly existence. He said, quote, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, Even unto the end of the earth age, Matthew 28:19 19-20 The purpose of spiritual science is to help us understand the union of the sun's aura with the earth's aura, a process that began at that moment. It can be seen and heard by those whose spiritual eyes and ears are opened, as were Paul's, to the resounding sun word, just as it was heard by Lazarus, whom the Christ initiated. Spiritual science, whose purpose is to help us understand this fact, interprets spiritual events in cosmic evolution. As such, it will realize on earth the community that Christ Jesus began to establish, as described in Matthew. There is one passage in Matthew that is usually completely mistranslated. It is the beautiful, glorious verse, I have not descended to earth to discard peace. But to discard the sword. Unquote. Matthew ten thirty four. Unfortunately, these magnificent words of peace were transformed over time into their exact opposite. The Christ being left his imprint on the earth's spiritual existence to redeem everything that brings discord and disharmony into the world. Spiritual science will bring peace to our own region and to the entire world when it becomes truly Christian in the sense of unifying all religions, and when it comprehends the accomplishment of the greatest peacemaker. It is impossible that the greatest of peacemakers wanted fanatics to roam the globe imposing current Christian doctrines on cultures so different from our own that they lack any ability to receive them. It is a great mistake, for example, to impose current Christian dogma on Eastern cultures. As anthroposophists, we have often mentioned that the Christ is not the exclusive property of so-called Christians. He is essentially the same being Zarathustra called Ahura Mazda, and the one whom the seven Indian rishis called Vishvakarman. As Westerners, we know that Eastern cultures use different names that nonetheless refer to the Christ being. We must also try to understand the Christ in a way that harmonizes with the progress of human evolution. True understanding of the Christ must come not from documents that deny him, but from those who consciously host the Christ's living influence. We know that when we speak to non-Christians about our views of Vishwa Karman or Ahura Mazda, they accept what we say and begin to understand their own Christ. But we must refrain from imposing the name Christ on others. If we are esotericists as well as anthroposophists, we know that it is not the name that is important, it is the being that matters. When we recognize that it is appropriate to call the being we know as Christ by a different name, we will do so in an instant, because we are more concerned with truth than with preferences based on geographical location and cultural identity. We must not believe, however, that we can understand the Christ by means that had been withdrawn from his influence and are therefore unsuitable. This is impossible. We can indeed discover the Christ in other cultures, but our means must flow from the Christ himself. Anthroposophists cannot be accused of refusing to study Christianity by means not derived from Christianity itself. If we attempt to understand the Christ only by applying names from Eastern cultures, We look past the Christ rather than at him, though we may believe we see him. This cannot and must not happen, not because of any aversion to the East, but because Eastern terms, which are older, are inadequate for understanding the Christ. We can understand the Christ only when we recognize that he arose from the lineage of Abraham and Moses. Moses, however, received part of Zarathustra's being, so we must consider Zarathustra's influence on him. Ultimately, we must look for Zarathustra not in ancient Persian scriptures, but in his incarnation as Jesus of Nazareth. We must consider ongoing evolution. Similarly, we must look for the Buddha not as he was in 600 BC, but as Luke describes him after his transformation from Bodhisattva to Buddha, shining from the heights and illumining the astral body of Jesus as described in Luke. This is where we must look for the Buddha and his progress. Thus we recognize the essential agreement among religions. They work together to allow human progress. It is important to avoid preaching at anthroposophic principles. We must transform them into living feelings. We must not preach tolerance and then show intolerance because of a bias for one or the other of the earth's many religions. Real tolerance measures each system by its own standards and understands it on its own terms. It is certainly not because of us that various religious systems interacted and gave rise to Christianity, nor is it the result of our religious preferences. What happens in the spiritual heights where great spiritual beings work is very different from what happens on earth among those who believe in these beings. For example, when the Buddha was descending to inspire the astral body of Luke's Jesus, his believers called a council in Tibet and attached, Orthodox doctrines to the name of the Buddha. Believers always place their faith in the effects of an historical earthly manifestation of a divine being. Meanwhile, however, such beings continue to work so that humankind can progress. We progress most successfully when we try to make our progress in a way like that of the gods who look down upon us. For us, this effort leads to a living understanding of what we have glimpsed in the Gospels. We have discovered something different in each of the three Gospels we have studied so far. One day, when we study Mark, we will reach an intimate knowledge of cosmology, because Ahura Mazda, who works throughout space, can be described by approaching Mark in the right way, just as Matthew's descriptions reveal the mysteries of the human bloodline and the interactions of individuals with their heredity. Please take what I have described here as only one possible aspect of the great Christ event, and please be aware that much remains unsaid. The time may not yet be right to communicate everything that can be said of these great mysteries, even in intimate circles. The best that we can do with what we have learned here is to unite it with the innermost fibers of our soul, with all our hearts and minds, and not simply process it rationally and intellectually. The words of the Gospels, when we truly understand and imprint them in our hearts, continue to work there. They are transformed into forces that pervade us and become a unique life force we can carry into daily life. Today, as I bring my thoughts on Matthew to a close, at least as far as this lecture course is concerned, I would like to emphasize something I have often said at the end of our summer lecture series. I mention it this time in connection with that most humanly beautiful of Christian documents, the Gospel according to Matthew. What element is it that we encounter especially in Matthew? From the beginning it focuses on the human aspect of Christ Jesus. No matter how great the difference between an ordinary person and the one who was able to receive the Christ, a humble view of Matthew reveals the true value and worth of each human being. Our own nature, no matter how far removed from that of Jesus of Nazareth, is nevertheless human nature, and human nature has proved capable of receiving the Son of God. This Son of the living God promised to remain united with the earth's spiritual existence until the earth achieves its goal, when all human beings will be filled with the substance and being of the Christ to the degree that they accept his presence within them. Even entertaining such an ideal requires humility. If we do not think humbly about it, we will become arrogant. We will make too much of what we can become as human beings and downplay how little we are able to accomplish right now. We must experience this ideal in all humility. And indeed its appearance is so great and powerful, so majestic and imperative in its splendor, that it naturally imposes humility on us. This humility is not oppressive, however, because through it we see the truth of the ideal, and when we do, our feeble strength will inevitably increase and lead us ever upward toward our divine goal. My Ruzicrucian mystery, the portal of initiation, strikes all the notes that we need for this ascent. The character of Johannes Thomasius is crushed by the weight of the words, Know Yourself, Then he ascends jubilantly into the vast cosmos under the influence of the words Experience Yourself. These scenes can help us understand the majesty and grandeur of Matthew's Jesus. Matthew not only shows us our smallness and challenges us to become humble, but shows us an inner truth and reality that steers us away from the abyss of our smallness, which offers so stark a contrast to what we should and can become. Whenever self-knowledge makes us feel crushed and insignificant in comparison to our divine potential, we must preserve the goodwill to experience something of the divine impulse of the Son of the living God. We must try to recall Christ Jesus, the highest representative of the human eye, who calls out to us for all times to come in the succinct words, experience yourself. Understanding the human aspect of Matthew the most accessible of the Gospels, will instill in us the courage, strength and hope we need to remain upright in our life's work. To best understand what I have meant to convey, take my words away with you and continue to ponder them. It is never possible to say more than a little at any one time. Your own hearts and souls, however, will take more from these words as time passes. To the extent that they have captured the truth of the Christ event, you can be certain that these words will live twice. By allowing them to echo in your hearts, you will discover more than if you simply commit them to memory. What I have said here was intended to be a stimulus. If you look for its results and effects in your hearts, you may discover something completely different from what I have said and from what you have learned in our brief time together. The end of Lecture 12, given in Bern, September 12th, 1910.